Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit would be with us as we uh, really dig into some of the, the uh, symbolic uh, teachings that you have for us in Scripture. May we uh, find the true meaning of the, of the reality upon which your universe is built. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And uh, first thing, we're going to start with Lesson 12, which is le- uh, the lesson, Growing in Christ, entitled, Last Things, Jesus and the Saved. And the memory text is Acts three nineteen through 21. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom, whom heaven must receive until the times of restor- restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his prophets since the world began. So first, first thing, you notice it said, um, repent that your sins may be blotted out. From where? Where are sins blotted out? From where are sins blotted out? Thank you guys. From the mind, heart, and character. Do you know you stand in the minority of people? Many people believe that the sins are blotted out of recorded history. Books, record books. No, they're blotted out of hearts, minds, character. We are renewed, we're healed, we're, we're, we're cleansed. That's where it's... And, and, um, you notice it says, so that, so the sins may be blotted, so that a time of refreshing may come. What, what do you think that means, this is the time of refreshing? Spirit. What, what, what's another, if you were to use a synonym for refreshing, what would you use? Renewal. Oh, a time of renewal. What's another, what's another synonym? Cleansing. Times of cleansing. So do you see a connection between blotting out of sin and renewal? How about a time of transformation? A time of recreation, a time of regeneration, all of these things, a time of refreshing, refreshing. Anybody have a computer? You ever hit refresh? <laughs> yeah? Okay. You, you basically, you're trying to get back to the default, <laughs> refresh it, uh, you know, make it get back to the default because you got glitch or something. He wants to refresh us in Christ, refresh us back to God's design that he created mankind to be. Yes? Uh, when you talk about refreshing in your personal life, mm-hmm. Afterwards, you're more relaxed. Isn't it true? So once God refreshes us from our sins, we're actually freed from those sins, and we feel better, we act better, and and are renewed because of it. Uh, Well said. Well said. So I see a connection between the blotting out, yes, in the back. And also the refresh is you're updating to the new. Ah, I like that, updating to the new. Yeah, good. Wendell. Where it comes from, God's presence. Yeah, and that was the next thing, yes. Where does this refreshing come from? From the presence of the Lord. From the presence of the Lord. So the refreshing comes out from the Lord. As his re- and there's a connection between the blotting out of the sin in us and the refreshing and renewal to be like him coming from the Lord himself. Now, what imagery... Oh, do you think that the refreshing that we're to experience comes before or after the second coming? Do you know you're also probably... Uh, I'm not, I haven't taken a poll, but you know... Not everybody thinks that way. Let's put it that way. There are many people who believe that refreshing comes at the second coming. That we just live in sin. There's no victory. We continue. We, we've claimed the blood. Our sins have gone before and into judgment. The, the uh, sins past, present, and future are laid on Christ. They're paid at the cross. We've claimed uh, salvation. We've been saved. And, and when he comes, then we'll be refreshed. That's what a lot of people believe. But the scripture also says when he comes... We shall see him face to face, for we shall be like him. So how, when did we become like him? I'm suggesting to you that the renewal of heart, mind, character, the transformation happens now, preparing you for his coming, so that you're ready to see him when he comes. Is this all handsome work? I was just thinking about this presence of the Lord thing. The scripture is quite clear that the Lord's presence is you know, it's an unapproachable fire. And yet that's what, that's what renews and regenerates and refreshes us. And yet, the unrenewed and unrefreshed heart is afraid of that. And, and the Holy Spirit destroyed by that. And on Pentecost, when the Spirit fell to refresh and renew them, they saw tongues of right. Flame. fire. Yeah, yes. When we see the presence of the Lord, literally, when we do, 
then there will be a completion of that refreshment. Yes. It will be complete. Yes. See, we get refreshed in character now, and then we get refreshed in body then, right? Yeah, I like that. All right, so does the Bible give us any imagery? Is there any imagery in the Bible to teach God's plan of to regenerate mankind back into his original ideal and perfect fellowship with him? Any imagery that teaches that, that idea? How about the sanctuary? How about the sanctuary? Is that imagery designed to teach God's plan to refresh, regenerate, and bring us back into unity with him? Way in the back. Baptism. Baptism. Well, I was wanting to talk because the next, let's go to Sundays and Mondays. Not that you're wrong at all, but the lesson is leading us towards the sanctuary, Heavenly Sanctuary Part 1 and Heavenly Sanctuary Part 2 in Sunday and Monday's lesson. So the Heavenly Sanctuary, you ever heard that term before? What is it? And, 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 and let's not make assumptions. I wanted to uh, take an evidence-based approach using inspired sources to determine what is the Heavenly Sanctuary. Just the place where God is, is it not? The place where God is. Would you be comfortable saying the place where God dwells? Sure. Oh, did I just shift things? (laughs) Do you notice I just just shifted things, didn't I? (laughs) See, the place where God is makes it sound like a physical location, doesn't it? The place where God dwells. That's a little different. Have you ever heard of the scripture uses the phrase a dwelling place for God? Hmm, what's a dwelling place for God in Scripture? What's it called in Scripture? I will, you will build, and I will dwell among you. What, 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 what was it that was to be the dwelling place? Oh, so the sanctuary is a dwelling place for God. Now, let's keep that in mind. This is Hebrews 8, 1 through 5. It says, the whole point of what we are saying is that we have such a high priest who sits at the right hand of the throne of the divine majesty in heaven. He serves as the high priest in the most holy place, that is, the real tent which was put up by the Lord, not by human hands. Every high priest is appointed to present offerings and animal sacrifices to God. And so our high priest must also have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer the gifts required by the Jewish law. The work they do as priests is really only a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. It is the same as it was with Moses. When he was about to build the sacred tent, God said to him, be sure to make everything according to the pattern you were shown on the mountain. What is this This text is full of information. Full of information, this passage. What does it tell us about the sanctuary in heaven? And what Moses built. It tells us that there's a sanctuary in heaven, and what Moses built was a shadow of it built after what Moses saw. And what did Moses see, according to the text? Did he see the sanctuary in heaven? He saw blueprints. Exactly. Get your mind around this idea. It's very important. Moses did not see the sanctuary in heaven. Moses saw a pattern. And when you see a pattern of a dress, anybody know what a dress pattern is? Anybody even still make dresses anymore? And go and you buy a pattern. When I was a kid, mom would buy patterns for dresses and go get the cloth and and mom and grandma would would make dresses and they would have the pattern. And the pattern was this like really kind of fine paper that you could cut through, you know what I'm talking about? Now when you look at the pattern, at the pattern, are you looking at the dress? No. No. You know, when I looked as a kid looking at that pattern, just lay it out there. It's going like, I don't see a dress in that at all. When you lay the pattern, all the different pieces and all that stuff laid out flat on the table, I don't see a dress. Now, maybe those of you who've done enough work with it where you put them all together, you can envision what that's going to look like. But when I was a kid looking at it, I never saw a dress. And if you laid a suit jacket out there instead, I, I couldn't have said, that's a suit jacket and that's a dress. It's, like, it's a pattern. I would have to say, what, what are you making? The point is, Moses didn't see the sanctuary in heaven. He saw a pattern. Yeah, Tim, it's like I used to work in a foundry, and uh, the pattern would be an impression in the sand. When you put two of those together and fill it full of iron, it makes the hole. Excellent. Another, Another example. So should we conclude that in heaven there is a giant tent made with goat skin, acacia wood, gold, and silver? No, that's a pattern. 
there is a sanctuary in heaven. It is greater and grander than anything on earth. But I'm going to, I'm going to say this. What we see on earth is not a miniature duplicate of what is in heaven, but a symbolic representation of what is in heaven. I'm going to say that again. What we see on earth is not a miniature duplicate of what's in heaven, but a symbolic representation of what's in heaven. Get your mind around that idea. It's completely different. What we've done, we've, we've thought very concretely, historically, as we looked at this, and we transcribe, translate concretely the symbols and create a symbolic edifice in heaven and then plug Christ into the symbolic edifice in his symbolic ritualistic garb doing symbolisms in a building in heaven rather than interpreting the reality that the symbols were to teach. Way in the back, yes. If Moses had seen what he's, the real thing in heaven, he wouldn't have had a clue of what to do in the desert. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, he couldn't build. He, he would not have been able to build that if he just saw reality. Because he couldn't translate. It'd be like you, it would be like you seeing human physiology, biological cells in a microscopic level operating, and you're going to go out and then build a building to represent that. Uh, not happening. Not happening. Yeah. The one in the desert had to be portable too, and I'm sure the one in heaven is more permanent. <laughs> so, next question. According to Scripture, if we're going to use Scripture, and, and, and if you're going to give me an answer, I want you to throw a Scripture at me to support it. From what is the sanctuary in heaven built? Constructed. Living stones. Okay, there's a Scripture. There's a Scripture. First um, Peter 2, 4-7. And you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men and chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So there's one text that suggests that the sanctuary is built out of living beings. Any other text? It says you yourselves are God's temple. You yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. 1 Corinthians 3.9 goes along with that. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. 2 Corinthians 6.16. We agree. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Ephesians 2.19-22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Hmm. Hebrews 3.6 But Christ is, a, is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold to our courage and hope of which we boast. So, this isn't all. We're, this, is just a, this is just the opening salvo. Right now we have some Bible texts that would suggest to us that, that there's a temple that's being constructed, and it's being constructed out of intelligent living beings. Yes? But this is the temple on earth, and the temple in heaven is a different place. This is, this is a, a concern. But yet we're on earth, and the temple in heaven is a different place. Okay, let's you look at Revelation 21. But we're going to get to Revelation 21. We're not there yet. Okay. We're going to get there. Yeah, let's pull, let's, pull, let's pull it together. Okay? So... We, we believe there's a sanctuary in heaven. We have right now, from the text we've read, we have two options. One option is the sanctuary in heaven is constructed, based on the text we've read, out of living beings, living stones built together in a house for the Lord. Or we have an idea that, that the heavenly sanctuary is built out of inanimate materials. Heavenly gold, heavenly brick, heavenly mortar, heavenly pearls, heavenly jewels. Uh, inanimate materials. So, in your mind right now, we're going to go through some other texts, and I want you to ask the question, as you look at these other texts, does it fit more consistently with a temple built out of living beings or a temple built out of inanimate matter? Let's look at some other texts. Zechariah 6, 12 and 13. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man 
whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on the throne, and there will be harmony between the two. Intelligent beings are inanimate material. Think about it. If the temple in heaven is built out of inanimate materials, why does he need to leave heaven in order to build it? Can anybody answer me that? It was just built out of cosmic dust, cosmic gold and, and silver and, and pearls and, and jewels of various kinds. If that's what, why does he have to leave his place to go out and build the temple? What did he say to those who were about to crucify him? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'm going to raise it back up. Is that anything connected to what he was branching out to build? Here's another one. Second uh, Corinthians five one. We already read in Hebrews how the temple built by God was not built by human hands, right? Second Corinthians five one. Now we know five one through five, or four five one through four. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. Wendell, in heaven. What's that? Not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because we are, when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Living being or inanimate material? Do you, how many want to spend eternity in a, in a, in a box? I want to spend eternity in a, in, a, in a perfect body that Jesus created for me. Do you notice here that this temple being described, this, this eternal house, this building, was not built by human hands? When we think about two types of temples, one is a living being, one is inanimate, made out of gold, bricks, mortar. Which type of temple can a human hand build? Oh, the inanimate kind. So we're talking one not built by human hands. Only, only God can create a living being. Not built by human hands. We can't do that. We can build the other kind, even a big one. How about this? Hebrews 8.10. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. They will be my God and, and they, uh, I will be their God and they will be my people. What temple is the law being put into in the new covenant? An inanimate box or a living being? Hebrews 9, 9. And I'm going to read several in a row. 9, 9, 9, 14, 10, 2, and 10, 22. I'm going to read them all in a row. But think, Inanimate, uh, a living being, inanimate box related to the uh, temple and what's going on. Hebrews 9, starting verse 9. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? If it could, would they not have been would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed. The worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. What, what's being described? The old was inadequate because it, it couldn't cleanse what? It couldn't cleanse the mind, the conscience, the heart, the character. It couldn't do that. So what, what type of a building needs a, has a conscience? Where's the cleansing taking place? Daniel 8, 14. 2,300 days and the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Living beings? Inanimate building. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. As you think about Daniel 8, 14, let's throw this text in. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. Concerning the coming of our Lord and being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become 
easily unsettled or alarmed by the prophecy report letter supposed to have come from us saying that the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the rebellion occurs. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Think it through with me. This is after Christ's death, after Christ's resurrection, after Christ's ascension, after Pentecost. All this has happened. Christ is now reigning in heaven. He's sat down at the right hand of majesty, as we just read in Hebrews. And yet, this, the rebellion is going to come, and the man of sin is going to set himself up in God's temple. Did he go up into heaven, throw Christ off of his place in heaven, and sit down and start reigning there? So where does he set himself up? In what temple? The, temp- the, the temple of our minds. By, 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 this is, this, he is talking about what's happening after the apostolic age when the, when, when, the, when the distortions of God come in and all the false God constructs and theology come in and we buy into Satan's view of God through the dark ages and the minds are dark and darkness covers the people, gross darkness the people because we've bought into the lies about God that spirit temple is, is contaminated. And there's a prophecy God foresaw, if you remember the 2300-year prophecy, it encompasses the portion of 490 years prophesying for 490 years and then the Messiah will come. So it's a grand prophecy of 2030 years prophesying that, look, the Messiah is going to come, but then, putting this piece in, there's going to be a after action. After Messiah comes, there's a counterattack coming from the devil. The devil's going to misrepresent and going to twist the, the cross. He's going to turn the cross not into an achievement of victory to heal and, and restore mankind back into godliness. He's going to turn the cross into an appeasement, a punishment. God, God, the executioner killing us on the cross. And we're going to get these distorted God concepts in our mind. It's going to be 2300 years before enough truth is recovered that the sanctuary can be cleansed. We can see God for who he is. 23 years of sanctuary be cleansed. Malachi, if you want another text, Malachi 3, 1 through 3. The Lord will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant who you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites. Who are the Levites? Priesthood of believers. He will purify the people, the Levites, and refine them like gold and silver. Notice what? He's coming to his temple to do what? To cleanse the people. To cleanse the minds. To cleanse the characters. What type of temple? Inanimate or living being? It's a living being that's being cleansed. How about this? Now we're going to Revelation 21. Wendell brought it up. Revelation 21, starting verse 9. One of the seven angels who had been who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came to me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Pause right there. Who is the bride of Christ? Keep reading. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of the very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and upon them were the names of 12 apostles and the Lamb. Wait, the bride is the city? What is that? Is this, is this a description of the physical city, or is this a symbolic description? Do we, are we going to go uh, dig under the city walls, and we're going to find the corpses of the 12 apostles? As I said, it's, it's a foundation right there. That we're going to find. No, this is symbolic. We read one earlier in Ephesians that something is built on the 12 apostles. We read it earlier today. This is built on the 12 apostles. The bride of Christ is the church. And what is the church made out of? God's children. Ah, the bride here is symbolic and represented as the New Jerusalem. What do you think the New Jerusalem is made out of? God's children, living beings. Hmm. Is this also describing then the most holy place of the sanctuary? 
Well, let's look at some evidence. Anybody know what shape the, if you, if you look at the shape of the holy city, what's its shape? The New Jerusalem. Cube. What's, it's a cube. It's a perfect cube. What's the shape of the most holy place? If you look at the measurements of the system, what's the shape? Perfect cube. It's a perfect cube. The holy city, if you read the whole text, the New Jerusalem is made out of gold. The whole city is made out of gold. What's the most holy place made out of? Gold. It's all lined with gold. Um, Malachi says that we just read that Christ comes to his temple to purify the, the priesthood as gold and silver. And the church of Laodicea is to buy from Christ gold tried in the, in the fire. The city has the name of the 12 tribes and the gates and the 144,000 are from what? Which symbolize the saved are from what? From one from each of the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes. This is a symbolic uh, representation of the saved. The foundation of the New Jerusalem is the 12 apostles and the Lamb. And we read in Ephesians that the foundation of the church is the 12 apostles and the Lamb. They're both built on the same foundation. Hmm. The walls of the city are made, the wall of the city we've read is made of jasper. Revelation 4.3 says that Christ appears as jasper. Thus the city is dressed in Christ-likeness. Get your mind around that. The wall that surrounds the city. When you look at the city, you see jasper. When you see that, when you look at the people of God, you see the character of Christ. And it says that the city shall shine with the glory of God. We just read it. What is the glory of God? His character. So the, are, are we suggesting that, that the Bible gives us symbolism that the city is another representation, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the most holy place, the bride. Now think it through with me. What is the, 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 the event that happens in the most holy place? The, the special event once a year happens in the most holy place. The day of atonement, which is the day of, we have two views, at one mint. They're coming into unity at one or the day of appeasement. Two views. I'm suggesting it's the day of atonement, day of at one mint, Yom Kippur, the day of reconciliation, the day of coming to unity. And that happens in the most holy place, the golden cube, where we all come into unity. Now we have the, the city, which is described as what? The bride of Christ. And what does a husband and wife do? They come into what? Unity. Unity at one mint. Atonement. Unity. Isn't it beautiful? Really cool symbolism, isn't it? Well, further, when the city comes down, it comes down to rest upon, anybody know? A great mountain. Isaiah 2 and Micah, Isaiah 2 2 and Micah 4 1. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above all hills. You notice this is in the last days. In the last days, it's going to happen. And what is that mountain? Isaiah 30 29 and Daniel 2 35. You will sing, this is first Isaiah 30, 29. You will sing as on the night you celebrate a holy festival, your hearts will rejoice when the people go with their flutes to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And this is, this is a, a little bit of poetry here. And the second phrase is another way of saying the first phrase. The mountain of the Lord, they go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. Who's the rock of Israel? Well, if you're not sure that Jesus is also the mountain, then Daniel 2.35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were broken into pieces at the same time they became chaff, the wind, because the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Well, what's that rock that becomes the huge mountain? Anybody have doubt that's Jesus? Interesting, isn't it? And then Revelation 3.12, we're still asking, what do you think is more consistent with the heavenly sanctuary, built out of living beings, intelligent beings, which are a dwelling place for God, or built out of inanimate heavenly brick and mortar? This is uh, Revelation 3.12. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. Oh my goodness, we're going to be in prison in a building in heaven forever. Because we can never, for all eternity, we will be locked in a building and we can never leave it, it says. Unless, wait, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. 
Holy, 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 right? Think what it just said. Did you hear it? He who overcomes will be a pillar in the temple. We'll never leave it. Why will we never leave it? Because we'll be it. We are the temple. Wherever we go, we are the temple. And we have his name, which is his character written on us, and the name of the city, the new Jerusalem. Is that cool? All right, let's, uh, I'm going to do some comparison of the old and the new to just flush it out even further. Yes, Russell. I was wondering if you want to touch on the similarities between the construction of Solomon's temple. And- yes, we're going to get there. Okay. Yeah, we're going to get there. All right, let's do compare the old and the new. The, in the old, the blood of the animal was ministered throughout the, 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 the various places throughout the sanctuary. In the new, Jesus said, the blood is to be administered where? John 6. Unless you drink my blood. Where's he saying the blood goes? inside. In the old, the priest would eat the flesh of the animal. Jesus said in John 6, unless you eat my flesh. Where is it to go? Inside us, his character. We're to ingest Christ's likeness. We are to be renewed internally with Christ. In the old, the law was written on stone to be kept in the most holy place inside the ark. In the new, the law is to be placed where? It's to be kept in the sanctuary of the, in the most holy place of your heart and mind is where the new covenant says, Hebrews chapter 11. Um, no, is it 12? Wait, Hebrews what? Hebrews 8. That's thank you. Hebrews 8. Okay. The most holy place we already mentioned was covered in gold and the believers to buy gold from Christ. In the old, the priest wore robes of white. In the new, the priesthood of believers are to be rayed in. What are they to be rayed in? The purity of Christ-like character. They're to wear Christ in their heart, basically. They're to represent Christ. Um, in the old, the priest washed in the water from the laver before they ministered the blood, symbolically, the life of Christ, before it was ministered. They washed in the water, which is symbolic of what? Well, the priesthood of believers are washed by the Holy Spirit before they minister the truth about God. That's revealed in Christ before they take the gospel. In the old, the priests, and only the priests, went into the holy place every Sabbath and ate the bread. Every Sabbath, that showbread got eaten by the priests and only the priests. The priests are representative of the believers in Christ. And every Sabbath in the new, we come together and internalize, ingest the word of God. Jesus Christ, I am the bread that come down from heaven. We're to partake of him together every Sabbath. God's law could not be kept slash deposited slash written in a building, either in heaven or on earth. God's law is the law of love and is a living law, a law upon which life is built. And a law, and this type of law cannot be contained and fully expressed on stone. It requires it be written and expressed by living being. Thus, God created a dwelling place for his character and his law. Let us make man in our image. And Adam and Eve were created to be the place, the repository where God uh, deposited his law and his character and his nature and his being to be a place where God dwells by his spirit. Adam was created to be the temple of God. And of course, because of sin, this temple became defiled. The law of God was replaced by the law of sin and death, the law of survival of the fittest, the law of fear and selfishness. Uh, and this temple no longer revealed the truth about God and his nature. So Christ came to restore God's temple, to cleanse God's temple. So I've got a few quotes now that I think you'll find very interesting from one of the founders of our church. But before I read those, and this is going to, I think, bring the point up you wanted to, Russell. Before I read those, any questions so far? So keep in your mind as we go through these next quotes, are we talking about a heavenly sanctuary built out of living beings or are we talking about a heavenly sanctuary built out of inanimate material? This is education, page 35. And the building of the sanctuary is a dwelling place for God. Moses was directed to make all things according to the pattern of things in the heavens. God called him into the mount and revealed to him the heavenly things and in their similitude, the tabernacle with all that pertained to it was fashioned. So to Israel whom he desired desired to make his dwelling place, he revealed his glorious ideal of character. The pattern was shown them. Now get this. Remember we talked about the pattern? Did you see the heavenly sanctuary? 
A building? Or did he see the pattern? It says the pattern was shown them in the mount when the law was given from Sinai and when the Lord passed before Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. So what pattern was revealed? The pattern of character was revealed. That's the pattern Moses was shown, not the pattern of a physical building in heaven. Now, does that sound more consistent with inanimate brick and mortar or more consistent with living being? Living being, let's keep going. But this ideal they were in themselves powerless to attain. The revelation at Sinai could only impress them with their need and helplessness. So now, what's this next word mean? Another. What's another mean? In addition, so listen to this, another lesson the tabernacle through its services of sacrifice was to teach. Another lesson? What was the first lesson? God's ideal of character. What humanity was to be, that's the first one. But another lesson it was to teach, the lesson of pardon of sin and the power of the Savior for obedience into life. In other words, the, the lesson of healing and restoration. So the first lesson is to teach us is God's ideal for character, what he built us to be. And the second lesson is his plan to heal and restore. Through Christ was be, to be fulfilled the purpose which the tabernacle was a symbol. That glorious building, its walls of glistening gold, reflecting in rainbow hues, the curtains inwrought with cherubim, the fragrance of ever-burning incense pervading all, the priests robed in spotless white, and the deep mystery of the inner place above the mercy seat, between the figures of the bowed worshiping angels, the glory of the holiest, in all... God desired his people to read his purposes for the human soul. What was it to teach us about bricks and mortar in heaven? No, it was to teach us about what we are to become, really become. How about this quotation? This is um, out of Manuscript Release, Volume 2, page uh, 1958. Yes. You're hitting me hard this morning. Praise God, huh? Because remember, I'm challenging you to think. Well, that's right, and that, that I appreciate. But I have sat through Fordism, I've sat through separatists, and they, they quote, 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 quote. And I'm trying to put this all together, and I still see a... Uh, even though I, I can follow you with the... Um, the spiritual application of it, I'm not convinced in my mind that there literally is not. Uh, so did anybody hear me say there's not, there's not something physically real in heaven? No, but I felt that you were going that. No, I keep saying, what is it built out of? Yes. And, and, and so if it's built out of living beings, are they physically real? Or are they amorphous, mystical, vapors? If they're built out of beings... Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't even fathom. Exactly. I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man. Okay, so you know where I'm coming from. And, but you get a clue in, in the book of Job. What happened in the book of Job? Opening scenes, book of Job, there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's something happening in heaven. What do we see happening in heaven? A judgment. Where does judgment take place? According to our theology? In the sanctuary. And what is we see described in that book? A little glimpse behind the veil. Behind the veil. Hmm. What do we see? Intelligent beings from the universe are gathered together. And Satan comes walking to and fro. I'm here representing Earth. Is there a place? Of course, is there, of course there's a physical place. But the physical place. Do you really think? Let's, think it, let's, let's start doing this. Let's get our mind around this for a second. In heaven, Lucifer begins his rebellion. He wants to usurp Christ and God and become the one that is in charge, basically. Everybody agree so far? Do you think he walks into the heavenly throne room, a cosmic, grand, super enormous, amazing building made out of inanimate material and says, Lord, wow. This cathedral, this temple is the most amazing structure I've ever seen. Look at the gold, look at the inlay, look at the artwork. It's fantastic. Lord, hey, Lord, uh, you wouldn't mind if I had this building, would you? Do you think the Lord would say, no way, this is mine. I spent three millennia building this building. You can't have it. Or do you think the Lord would say, it's just a building. If you want it, you can have it. I can snap another one to existence like this. Did Satan want to enthrone himself in an inanimate building? 
No. He wanted to throw himself where? Into the hearts and minds of intelligent beings, like we read in Thessalonians, to be the one most loved, the one most trusted, the one most adored. He wanted to be enshrined into the spirit temple. This is the temple he was trying to enshrine. Now, whether there's a physical structure there or not, I, I believe that there will be physical structure, but the physical structure is not the temple that needs cleansing. The physical structure is, 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 is pretty much meaningless to God. He can build a physical structure like this. And physical structure is made out of inanimate material. This building, even on earth right now, this building cannot sin. This building cannot commit sin. This building cannot be cleansed from sin. Right? Right. So when we talk about cleansing the sanctuary, what needs to be cleansed? The hearts and minds of his intelligent beings. Now, the scripture, some people get confused on this. Because the scripture also talks about heavenly things being reconciled to, to uh, God through Christ at the cross in Colossians when it says all things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. Heavenly things were being reconciled. And we, and we have some, some references about places about heavy, heavenly things being cleansed. What is it talking about? Well, did the unfallen angels in heaven, the beings who stayed loyal... Did they have doubts and questions in their mind? Lies that Satan had put there. They hadn't sided with Satan, but they had confusion that needed cleansing. Now, that's not cleansing from sin, but God's reputation had been damaged. That's why uh, Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 4 says, God, may you win your case when you take it into court. God, may you be proved right when you are judged, depending on which version you use. God was, was accused falsely, and even the loyal beings who stayed on the side didn't understand the mystery of it all until the cross. And that's why Christ said, I, when I be lifted up, will draw all unto me. Now, now the prince of this world should be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all unto me. And so when, at the cross, the prince of this world, Satan, was cast out of where? Out of, out of heaven. In, in what way? Did we have now a force field around earth so that Satan tries to go up to heaven? He goes, and God's using power to hold him here. Is that what's happening? Or at the cross, he was exposed as a liar and fraud in the minds of intelligent beings. Christ was revealed as the consummate God of love and trustworthiness. And so in the hearts and minds of intelligent beings, he was cast out of their affection. He was cast out of their, 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 their care and concern. He was cast out of any, any hook or, or avenue that he could approach them. beings. He was cast out of their minds permanently. The issue was settled for them. Talk to the hand, Satan. Talk to the hand. Not listen. And the only place he has traction now is in the minds of sinful human beings. He's been cast out of the rest of the universe, out of their hearts and minds. And God is trying to cast him out, to cleanse the spirit temple, to cast him out of our hearts and minds now. So let's read another one. We are God's great building. Every stroke, every stone put into the building is only part of the whole. Every worker is himself to become just what God designs he should be in that building should be in building his own life with pure, noble, right, and upright deeds that are, that at the end, he may be a symmetrical structure, a fair temple honored by God. I'm going to skip through. It's a lot more in the, in the notes. Um, so each day, God works with his building, stroke upon stroke, a per, to perfect the structure, which thus grows into a holy temple for the Lord. One stone mislaid affects the whole building. This figure represents human character which is to be wrought upon point by point. There is not to be a flaw in it, for it is the Lord's building. His church upon the earth is to assume divine proportions before the world as a temple uh, composed of living stones, every stone emitting light. This building is to be the light of the world, a city set on a hill which cannot be hid. It is composed of stones laid close together, stone fitted to stone, making a solid building. All the stones are not of the same form or shape. Some are large, some are small, but each has its own crevice to fill. And then, I'm going to skip down. The Lord's church is composed of his living, working agencies who derive their power to act from the author and finisher of their faith. The great work resting upon God's individual workers is to be carried forward in symmetrical harmony. So you see this, this building is not just the, our personal cleansing. It is a corporate coming together in a unity of heart, mind, purpose, that we work like the angelic host work together with, a, with the same common passion to uplift and glorify God, to reveal the truth about his nature and character, to free hearts and minds that are darkened with fear and foreboding of him. 
I think this one will bring it home to you, though. This is the last one I'm going to read of these. This is three manuscript release, page 231. The first tabernacle built according to God's direction was indeed blessed of him. The people thus were preparing themselves to worship in the temple, not made with hands. The temple in the heavens. The stones of the temple built by Solomon were all prepared at a quarry and then brought to the temple site. They came together without a sound of axe or hammer. Even so, the mighty cleaver of truth has taken out a people from the quarry of the world and is fitting this people who profess to be the children of God for a place in his heavenly temple. We want the cleaver of truth to do its work for us. We are taken from the quarry of the world. The material must not be dead substance, but living souls. And these souls must be brought out of the quarry of the world where the hand of God can fit them for the temple in heaven. We are here as probationers, and we must pass under the hand of God. All rough edges and rough surfaces must be removed, and we must be stones fitted for the building. We are brought into the church capacity with defects of our character, but we must not retain them. We must be fitted and squared for the building. We must be laborers together with God. We are God's husbandry. We are God's building. In view of this, we must see that our temple is not defiled with sin. We should be lively stones, not dead ones, but live ones that will reflect the image of Christ. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? What is she saying directly is the heavenly sanctuary built out of. It must not be dead material, she says, but living souls. Have we missed something in our sanctuary message? Yes. Yes, we have. And the 2300 days in the sanctuary should be cleansed. And what are we teaching? I got an A in college. <laughs> I should have got flunked. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, this is very confusing to me, Jeff. Well, yeah. Am I, for, let's, let's clarify what I have said and what I have not said. Have I said there is no sanctuary in heaven? No. Have I said Christ is not working to cleanse his sanctuary? Have I said Christ has not had a work to do since 1844? No. No, I haven't said any of those things. Christ has a work to do. He is working to cleanse his sanctuary. But what I'm suggesting is that we have uh, been stuck in symbols. We haven't stepped past the symbolism to the cosmic realities upon which the universe is operating. Uh, we have we have considered sin to be something of a, tra- of, of, of a breaking of a rule, something of a legal um, uh, difficulty we get into that's recorded in books and that needs to have a legal solution in some type of heavenly courtroom. Rather than considering that sin is a character deviation in which we are operating out of harmony with the way God built his universe to run and that God is trying to cleanse our characters, our minds, our hearts, our souls to restore us, to rebuild us, to refresh us into his likeness that we are living stones brought together in unity of love and revealing him fitted for the temple in heaven. And do you notice most of the things you mentioned earlier about some of the things you sat through in the history of our church and some of the difficulties that came up and some of the apostasies that came up? They weren't about transforming people. They were arguing legal parameters of Christ's duties and so forth and where he sits and whether he's done that or whether he's done this and what, what apartment he's in and when. And Think it through. Yeah. It was like what I, what I read to you a couple weeks back when the Catholic priest and the, and the Adventist theologian were, were de- debating on, um, on uh, the transubstantiation and what Christ's ministry was. And the Catholic priest said that, that Jesus in heaven is not being um, immolated. In other words, the immolation of a, the sacrifice, the immolation portion is when they actually kill the animal, the bloody sacrifice. And then the offering portion is when the, what has been killed is being offered. So the, the Catholic priest's position is Christ is not being immolated. He's not being killed over and over again. But... His, what he, his sacrifice that has been killed, he offers in heaven offering to his father over and over again. Every time we confess sin, every time we, we partake of the mass in the Catholic view, Christ offers his sacrifice to the father on our behalf. And the Adventist theologian says to him, no, no, no. He's not. Adventist or Protestant? Protestant, thank you. Thank you. Protestant theologian, um, um, which I suspect was an Adventist, but may not have been. <laughs> because, because it was on, um, it was on, I think, Amazing Discoveries, okay? Um, but it might not have been. Uh, but the, the Protestant theologian says, no, he's not up there offering his sacrifice to the Father when we confess our sin. He's offering his merits to the Father when we confess our sins. 
Now, do you see the total futility of this entire argument? Because they're both arguing that God the Father in heaven needs to be pled with by the blood or merit of his son in order to achieve forgiveness and pardon and salvation for us. That we have a a ruling authoritarian figure who must punish sin and we've got to have Jesus between us and him to protect us from him. They're arguing the same distorted God concept, just using different words. It's wrong. God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. If you see me, you've seen the Father. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare us, but gave him up, how will we not along with him give us all things? Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus? No, he is at the Father's right hand and is also interceding for us. What's that word also mean? In addition to Christ is also interceding with, in addition to who? In addition to the Father. The, the Christ was the means whereby the Father's plan for our redemption was achieved. There is no need, and Christ himself said in John 16, 16, John, excuse me, 16, 24, I will not pray the Father for you, for the Father loves you himself. I'm not going to do it. There's no need. So both of these are presenting, and this is what we have done. We've accepted this arbitrary law construct of a ruling authority, just like a Roman emperor, putting law upon us, and now he must rule over and punish for those, those breakers, and we have to have just payment paid to him so that he won't have to punish us. It's, all, it's, it's, it's the infection. It's the Roman construct. Isn't that part two, Tim, of the fundamental misunderstanding of the sanctuary when you first mentioned about where Ellen White mentions it's about twofold, that it was character and, and it was restoration? Exactly. Not identifying with that and pushing all that forward with the Roman construct that just... Right, and so, and so exactly, and we have it in different ways. You know, when Christ looks at us, he doesn't see us, he sees... I mean, when God looks at us, he doesn't see us, he sees Christ standing. Rather than transformational, we have covering. But it's not covering, it's transformational, regenerational, refreshing. I've got, I got several other things to go on, guys. This is great, but can I, can I hit a couple more points before we finish? Do you guys want to hear a little about the second coming and... and uh, go. Okay. <laughs> For instance, I was going to ask, how can you, uh, I don't have time to read all these paragraphs, but Satan is going to deceive the people of God. He's going to try to deceive, to try to deceive the people of God about the second coming. He's going to come to impersonate. The lesson talks about he comes impersonating Christ, uh, appearing as if he is the Christ come again. What is, do you think his strategy will be to get people who believe in Christ to accept him as Savior? Same as the first time. Would it, could it be? That if people believe that God, Jesus, imposed laws, and they're required, even though they're patient, loving, kind, but eventually as a just ruler, injustice must punish rebellion. If they believe that about God, are they set up to believe Satan is a fraud? They're set up to believe it. This is who's going to come. He's going to come and he's going to rule with a rod of iron. He's going to come speaking melodious words. He's going to come apparently raising the dead. He's going to come healing sick. And he's going to talk about how he wants us to come into unity. And he's going to talk about, I love you, I'm going to give you more chances. And in discipline, I'm going to have to discipline you in love so you're not going to be able to buy or sell, save him who accepts me. Because I'm going to, But it's a discipline, it's not punishment. I'm trying to turn you around just like a good parent puts you in time out. That's why I'm putting you in jail right now because it's time out for you to learn your lesson and come back to me. But if you don't, we're going to have to kill you. Have to execute you. Praise God for His justice. Many are going to say, "Yes." Still haven't figured out how He's planning to do it worldwide. It, it, uh, th- well, that's the next thing. How can you tell whether it's Satan or Christ if his, by His feet? If His feet don't touch, then it's, it's if His feet touch, it's not Him. We'll just watch the feet and we'll be safe. Yeah, right. Is that it? No. Oh. How about every eye will see Him? Is that what you're referring to? That's right. Does it say every eye will see Him simultaneously? Or does every eye will see him? So everywhere he goes, he heals the blind and every eye sees him. Come on. What's the scripture say? He say, it doesn't say every eye will see him simultaneously. I also in Moscow and say, have you seen him? <laughs> yes, and he will go around the world and every eye will see him. All the blind will be healed. We know blind, every eye sees him now. It's hard to be fooled. I disagree. Yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to be fooled. Or... Will it be by the brightness of his coming? Mm-hmm. If he had some angels come with him in brightness and glory, will you be able to tell that those are only the 60-watt angels and not the 100-watt angels? <laughs> will you be going up? Yeah. Will you be able to tell that? I don't think we'll tell by the brightness, will you? No. How about the Sabbath? Can you tell by the Sabbath? Will that be, will that be your dead giveaway? I mean, if, 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 Well, wait a minute. The Jews, then 2,000 years ago, why couldn't they tell? They had the Sabbath. Why didn't they know? Hmm. The only way to tell, I'm going to tell you guys, the only way to tell is to know God. 
to know his methods, his character, his law of love as a design protocol in which life is built. Then you will not get fooled by a being who comes with melodious words trying to use coercive pressure to force their way and to punish rebellion. That's Satan's view. Remember it says in Zyre of Ages 761, in the opening of the Great Controversy, Satan declared the law of God cannot be obeyed. If man were to sin, God could not forgive him. Every sin must be punished, urged Satan. So a God who must punish sin is what Satan says God is. And this is what the world is looking for. This is our God. We waited for him. I'm, I've been looking for the day to stand in the New Jerusalem and watch that person who molested me get punished. I've been waiting my whole life for that. Praise God, he's here. This is what the world's waiting for. Let's jump real quick into Thursday's lesson. Uh, it's about, de- it's about the, uh, the second coming. No, wait, it's about uh, death and resurrection. Do we go to heaven when we die? I didn't hear an answer. No. No. You, you know not to answer my questions, don't you? <laughs> well, let me read to you. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Listen carefully. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord will come down with the, with, uh, from heaven, a loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead will rise first. After that, we which are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds. What does this mean? God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Or Ecclesiastes 12.7, the dust returns to the ground it came from, but the spirit returns to God who gave it. Hmm. I have to run through this really fast because we're running out of time. When God formed Adam out of the, out of the dirt, Adam's body formed out of the dirt was not yet a living being. It was just a body laying there waiting for something. Waiting for God to do what? Breathe. Breathe into him the breath of life and he became a living being. The word breath in the Hebrew is uh, neshema, uh, and it's the same breath that all the animals have, and I've got this in the notes. And in First Kings, it talks about a, a person dies, the, there is no breath, no neshema left in them. This is all very interesting, but here's what gets interesting. The passage I just read to you out of Ecclesiastes, what returns to God is not neshema. What returns to God is ruach. Ruach returns to God. And in the Old Testament scriptures, it's uh, used 377 times, translated breath of the body 33 of those times. 33 times it's translated breath. So in a superficial reading, if you want to be superficial, you can go, he breathed into him the breath, and when he dies, the breath goes back. But he breathed into him the Shema, and what goes back is Ruach. Because Ruach is also translated, not only breath, it's also translated spirit, it's also translated courage, it's also translated temper, it's also translated seat of the emotions, it's also translated moral character 16 times, and the mind 9 times. Matthew, Jesus said, Matthew 10, 28, don't fear the one who can destroy the body, but who cannot destroy both body and soul. Greek word for soul? Psyche. From where we get psychiatry, psychology, your mind, your individuality, your identity. And what is being suggested in the Old Testament is God breathed into him the breath of life and he was a blank slate. But throughout his life, he developed a character. He developed his own unique individuality. And when we die, our unique individuality returns to God who gave it waiting for the day of resurrection. I have electronic medical records in my office, and uh, everything I do on my computer is immediately backed up through a wireless internet connection to a server in another room. If you take my, my laptop and you sh- throw it on the ground, you blast with a shotgun, you take the pieces of melt in the fire, you could say you have killed my laptop. I go get a brand new piece of hardware <laughs> and connect it to my server, download the data I have just resurrected. My laptop. Our individuality, everything that we're doing in our hard drive right here, who you're becoming, is constantly through a wireless connection backed up in the heavenly servers called the Lamb's Book of Life. If somebody destroys your body, they cannot touch what's on the Lamb's Book of Life. Your individuality is safe and secure with Christ in heaven. When he comes, he brings with him his heavenly servers and downloads your individuality into a new body and you come back to life. So he brings with him those who have fallen asleep with Jesus. Our identities, our individualities. Um, this is a quote from, out of a book called Heaven, page 40, written by Ellen White. 
Our personal identity is preserved in the resurrection, though not the same particles of matter or material substance as went into the grave. The wondrous work of God are a mystery to man. The spirit, the character of man, is returned to God there to be preserved. Isn't that fantastic? So we can have harmony with Scripture now, can't we? That, that, that little phrase I read to you, for many years, Adventists have struggled and stumbled in that phase. How, how's he bringing with him? No, he, bring, he brings with him. His heavenly our identities, our individualities are safe and secure. Aren't you glad to know if somebody pops you in the head today, your individual identity is safe and secure with Christ in heaven. They can't touch it. Amen. That's awesome. And when he comes, you can download your new body, and, and you wake up, and you go, wow, that's right where I left off. That does not put us in agreement with our evangelical friends. No, it does not. Did I suggest we were? No. I'm a comporter, and I, I'm battling with the other side all the time out there. But this is a beautiful text to give us unity. I think we can find common ground with this text. And we should find common ground, not division. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth that you provided for us in Jesus, the truth about who you are, the, the symbols that you've given us to help teach us the reality of your kingdom, to show us your character, to show us your methods of love. Lord, we ask that your spirit will come, take all that Christ has achieved, reproduce it in us, that we can be like you, living temples, shining forth your glory. May we come into a unity, a cohesive brotherhood and sisterhood that we can actually experience your love and be that shining city on a hill. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.